If you'll join with me, our scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6. If you'd like to follow along in our pew Bibles, this is on page 266. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Continue our series in 2 Samuel. Um, not all that familiar of passages for many people, and maybe some of you are familiar with this story, but um, typically not. And so uh, we'll, we'll go through all these 37 verses. Um, but before we get into this chapter, chapter 15, we do need to reference a couple key verses in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and 14. Uh, these two references will give us more background as to what's happening in chapter 15. So the first one to look at is 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And so a little background on that, if you're not familiar with chapter 12, is David sinned with Bathsheba, and he then had her husband Uriah killed in battle. And so God used the prophet Nathan to deliver this news in chapter 12 to David. And this prophecy from chapter 12 is what's happening here in chapter 15, where Absalom is setting up a coup to overthrow his father David. And the, the prophecy from chapter 12 is being fulfilled here in chapter 15. Now the second reference we want to look at is chapter 14, just one chapter ago, starting in verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, two hundred shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Absalom reconciled with his father David in chapter 14. And these verses describe Absalom's kind of handsome physical appearance and beautiful full-bodied hair, which I think many of us are envious of. But if you look at First and Second Samuel, um, he's not in good company. 
because the guys that are mentioned in First and Second Samuel, one of them is Saul. Um, very impressive in terms of physical appearance. You can read that in First Samuel chapter nine. But we know that he is a failed king. The other one is Eliab, who is David's oldest brother. When Samuel was looking for the next king to anoint, he looks at Eliab and he just sees this guy. He's like, whoa, check this guy out. This guy is huge and strong and handsome. And again, he would have just been Saul 2.0. That was not the one chosen. God said, no, Samuel, that's not the one. Move on. And so this is the company that Absalom is being described with. And the author is telling us that Absalom is cut out of the same cloth as those guys. That he's describing their physical appearance, but it's not anything of, of character or, or spiritual virtue. And so we need to keep these things in mind as, as we're looking at chapter 15. And in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 15, we have Absalom on his political campaign trail. And he's out there, he's just working the crowd. And if you can just imagine, this is the same thing that happens today. And I'm going to read it and you, you can just put the face of whoever you want on there. And it's the same thing, right? After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when the men had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, and that I were judge in the land, that then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. So he's out there meeting the people. He's, he's, you know, he's working his political angles with these people to, to win their hearts and their minds and he's out there shaking people's hands and kissing babies and, and promising change. Nobody does that nowadays, right? It's all the same. But then these people start believing it. They believe what he's telling them that, you know, David, the guy on the throne now, he doesn't care about you common people. I do. I care for you common people and you see I'm here, I'm hanging out with you. I'm talking to you. I'm meeting with you. Verse 5, And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so he's winning over the people like our politicians do today. They do the same thing. They, they go out and where do you see them? They're not in their mansions enjoying their fine dining meals. Where are they? They're at the diner. Right? They, they film that like, like they ever go to a diner. They, they never go to that diner, but they're here. They're there kind of eating with the people and having coffee with the people. And, and they, they always show them on the farm with the farmer. They've never done any farm work. They're there with the firefighters at a disaster zone. Or they're on the street uh, saying like this crime is a, is a horrendous thing and behind them is law enforcement. And they're, they're showing themselves to be with the people when they're not. They're not on these streets here. They're, they're not fighting fires. They're not farming. They're not doing anything. They're, they're, they're living their, their privileged lives, but we never see that. And the same thing's for Absalom. Absalom has a palace but no, he's just down, down on the city gates and, and talking to your common people. And that phrase there, stole the hearts, in verse 6, that's not like a, a positive thing. It's not, you know, Valentine's Day is a couple days away. And when, you know, you say to your, 
sweetie or whatever, you stole my heart. It's like, that's a positive thing. Like, wow, he, like he, he gripped me. Like, that's why I'm with him or with her and connotes something positive. But that's not the case here in verse 6. This is more along the lines of deception and, and trickery that Absalom tricked, that Absalom deceived the hearts of the men of Israel. And he made this handsome, beautiful appearance in the crowd with his beautiful hair, and he spoke to common people, and he made promises. He shook their hands. He, he told them that this current administration is not doing what I would do for you. And he's tugging at their heartstrings, and he's, he's appealing to their wants and their desires and what they feel like they're not getting. Verse 7, and at the end of four years, it's funny, campaign four years, anyway, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. And so it's kind of like, you know these politicians when they go to church? They probably never go to church, but they go to church to show like, hey, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. I'm accountable to something bigger, and so I'm responsible to something bigger. I want to show my religious side. This is kind of what's happening here with Absalom, too. He's, he's showing his kind of religious side just like politicians do today when they attend a church service. And it's, it's actually nothing new, right? It, this stuff has been happening for thousands of years, and the playbook is the same. The political game is the same, that this is what people try to do to win favor from the people. Verse 10, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as I hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So this coup that Absalom, David's son, was planning, this is four years in the making and Absalom now thinks, you know, it's time to pull it off. I, I have Ahithophel on my side, which is the a senior advisor to my dad, but now he's on my side. And now I have all these, this military backing, I, I can establish myself here in Hebron, and so this is the time. And David agrees. David agrees that, you know, Absalom has momentum behind him. He has military backing. He has Hebron. Um, it's time for us to flee. We got to go. Verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and his household after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house and the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And so David, David's the anointed king. Why is he running? He, he is the rightful king to the throne. Well, David has some things to consider as the king. That if he stays and he fights, there will be a lot of lives that are, are lost. 
not only of the people that are fighting each other, but just civilians, just people around there that, that are going to get killed. And he also needs to consider the amount of damage that is going to happen in the infrastructure of Jerusalem because things are going to be burned, property is going to be destroyed. All this stuff he has to take into consideration. There's also a huge unknown for David, a huge unknown. David doesn't know with complete certainty who is on his side and who is on Absalom's side. He does not know this. And so if he leaves, there's a much higher likelihood that those who go with him are actually loyal to him. Because those people who are leaving behind their homes and everything that gave them some sort of security, they're showing their loyalty by going with him. But if he stays, he doesn't know. He doesn't know who's who. And he also doesn't know, well, you know, if times start getting tough, are they just going to switch sides? Are they going to be on Absalom's side, even though right now they're on my side, but if I stay here and things get really bad, are, are they just going to switch? And so the ones who leave with David, he has a pretty good idea that they have his back. But by staying, he doesn't really know this. And so David is, is no dummy, and he exercises wisdom here. Yes, he did mess up with Bathsheba and Uriah. But he is still God's anointed. And he did follow the Lord for many years. And he is known as a man after God's own heart. Even though he messed up. And some of you, some of us, we, we know this as well. We, we do things that we know are wrong. And that doesn't mean that we're not after God's own heart. It's, we, we have times that we falter. And so there was some wisdom imparted to him. Because he walked with the Lord so many years and being a man after God's own heart that he would have some wisdom. And this is another thing we know about God is God gives us wisdom when we ask. And I'm pretty sure David asked for it right now. Right? James chapter 1 starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. David makes this decision to flee because he's looking at preserving the people, he's looking at preserving the kingdom, he's looking at, I don't even know who I can trust, so I need to figure that out too. I need to be able to discern these things. And similarly for us, when we're faced with really difficult decisions, tough decisions for us to ask for wisdom from God, who gives it generously. And the decisions that we make, they are they're not always easy. A lot of times there are very difficult decisions for us to make, but God will give us wisdom. Verse 18 in Samuel, and all his servants passed by him and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king for, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You, you came only yesterday and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go I, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And here David finds this ally in Ittai. Ittai is a, a Gittite, which means he's from Philistia. 
And this person found refuge as an exile in Jerusalem. And Ittai is, is loyal to David because David took him in, even though just for a, a short time, David tells Ittai, you know, stay here and stay with all your relatives. You're going to be taken care of better here than if you go with me because I don't even know where I'm going. And so he, he shares this with him, and, and, and he's, Ittai's only been there with him for a short time, so there's no way that Absalom could have conspired with him because he's only been there such a short time, and, and Absalom has been in Hebron. And so here David finds this true friend in Ittai, that true friends stay with you when, when things get difficult, that they stick by your side, even though other things around you may seem like they're crashing in, and these friends, they make a huge difference. Take a look at Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah is, is, a, is not a liked person. Because every time he speaks some sort of prophecy, it's not like nice. It's not good. It's not good news. And when people hear him, they're just like, la, 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 la. This guy is just, whenever he talks, it's just bad news. Like, get rid of him. But then there's this guy by the name of Ebed Melech. Ebed Melech um, turns out to be a friend because Jeremiah, the people don't like him and what, what happens to him? He gets thrown into an empty cistern. And so the, in the hopes of this guy is either going to starve to death in this empty cistern or the next time it rains, this guy's going to drown in this cistern that will fill up with water. But either way, we don't like this guy and we want to leave him for dead. And so they, they leave him there for dead. And Ebed Melech, who, who's this Ethiopian man, he goes to King Zedekiah, and he starts advocating for Jeremiah, saying, like, King, you know, if, if, if this guy is there, he, he's just going to die. And so if we don't help him, he's going to die. And so Zedekiah says, fine, take 30, 30 men, go rescue him, take him out. And this is a, a risky operation because, again, people don't like Jeremiah. They dislike him very much. He's a, he's a prophet that gives these prophecies that aren't very good in terms of outcomes. But they're very true, and they all come true. And so people want him gone, and they would rather not hear any of these prophecies over hearing them and then having to change. So Eben Melech, he, he rescues Jeremiah, and he puts his own life in danger now because he's a marked guy, because, hey, we put that guy there to die. You helped him. Now you're a marked man too. And so there he is. Jeremiah has one friend at a time when he was alone and... That guy saved his life. And you look at Paul in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, verses 16 through 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you will know all the services he rendered at Ephesus. And so a friend who from Ephesus traveled to Rome diligently, earnestly searched for Paul in Rome. He found him, and then he started taking care of him in prison. Because in a Roman prison, if you don't have food brought to you or any of these other provisions brought to you, then you died. They don't provide those things to you. Like, you, you will starve to death. And so everyone else abandons Paul. All his followers, everybody else abandons Paul after this Roman imprisonment because they're afraid. You know, what if we get imprisoned too, if we show up? And so everyone doesn't show up, but not Onesiphorus. He's like, Paul got locked up in Rome? I'm heading over there. 
and I'm going to look for him, and I'm going to put my own well-being on the line. And without this friend, Paul would have died much sooner than he did without his help. And so Ecclesiastes, in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, it reads this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another, another to lift him up. We all need friends. We all need that support. And the thing is, we don't even need that many, but we need them. And Jeremiah had Ebed-Melech. Paul had Onesiphorus, David had Ittai, and Ittai kind of takes it a step further. Ittai takes an oath, which for us, we, we come, sometimes we just take that kind of lightly. We just say things and we're like, oh yeah, we, I promise. But back then, it's serious. They, they mean it. And he says this, verse 21, but Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, wherever for death or, or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai, the Gittite, listen, listen to this, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. See, Ittai is not just giving lip service and saying like, hey, family, you guys stay here. I'm going to go with him. All the little ones who were with him, his little children, he's so serious, we're going to go into exile with King David. Into the wilderness, I don't know where, but we're going to go. And that's that true friendship, that's that true loyalty. Not someone who's there only when things are going good or when things are going great, but someone who is there even when things aren't looking that good. And even as they're going out into the wilderness, into a place of the unknown, they're still going to venture out with them. A true friend. So God gives us wisdom. God gives us friends. He gives us friendship. And what truer friend do we have than Jesus? John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus, who rescues us when we're as good as dead, just like Ebed-Melech did for Jeremiah. Jesus, who diligently searches us earnestly out. He, he earnestly searches us out, and then he cares for us and provides for us in our darkest moments, just like Onesiphorus did for Paul. And Jesus, who, who doesn't abandon us in our most despairing times, who is not ashamed to be associated with you in your lowest times, who, who stands with you in your most difficult times, just like Ittai did with David. And so God gives us wisdom. He gives us friends. And he also gives us freedom. Look at verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up. And behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. 
So Abiathar, Zadok, the Levite priests, they come showing up with the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant of, of God. This is the symbol of God, and, and his presence is in the Ark, and we're going to bring this symbol and presence with David with us. The Ten Commandments are in there that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. We're going to bring this with us, and you're, you're thinking in your head, this must be a good thing. But this is a good thing, that the religious establishment and the the leadership of of the religion recognizes David as king and they are pro-David. They recognize that this is a military coup, that this is not supposed to happen, and that the presence of God is with David, not Absalom. Absalom doesn't have the support of the religious leaders. We are not going to leave the Ark of the Covenant with him. And so here's the freedom that God gives. Look at verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. Do you see the freedom in that? Isn't that a very freeing way to live? And this is so different from when you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 4. In 1 Samuel 4, we we read of the Philistines defeating the Israelites, and then they capture the ark. Now, how did that happen? Well, the Israelites thought, you know what? If, If we bring the ark of the covenant out with us from Shiloh into battle, we're going to win. Because this is the presence of God. And so if we bring this with us, the, the presence of God is with us. But the thing is, is that's more superstition than it is faith. It's just like carrying a, a rabbit's foot with you. And like, if I do this, I'm going to win a lottery ticket. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like that. And so they thought, hey, with, with this ark, with this piece of furniture, we, we're going to have God's power. That, that with God's box, we're going to have God's help. And they were putting, putting all of this on God. And they thought that, you know, if this ark is with us, there's no way that God's going to let us lose. We're not going to be defeated. We're going to be victorious. But the thing is, it didn't work. The ark was captured by the Philistines. Well, fast forward into 2 Samuel chapter 15. David's not superstitious like those Israelites back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. He's not thinking, yeah, the ark's going to be with me, so therefore like God's going to be with me, and therefore everything's going to be fine. I'm going to be back here. No, he he had the freedom to recognize that God is going to show his grace. And if there is grace for him to see the ark again, great. And if not, that's the way it is. I'm free of that. I don't have to try to manipulate things. I don't have to try to bring things with me. I don't have to try to do stuff. And you've heard that saying of let go and let God. I don't think it's to that extreme But he's saying, let God do to me what seems good to him. And that's a really great place to be. It's a place of of freedom. There's no superstition. There's no gimmicks. It's just a simple submission to be placed in God's hands without any sort of manipulation going on. You're just letting it be. And there's this immense freedom to just simply be in God's hands. Now, this is not to say that we don't do anything. Because again, there are these people out there that are just like, let go and let God, and we just don't do anything. You just sit back and you just kind of let things happen the way that they happen. 
No, it's not quite that either. If you're doing that, then there's no effort or there's no work towards the desired outcome that you want, and you're just like there. And God sometimes wants us to intercede. He wants us to take action. And so, yes, David has a complete submission to God's sovereignty, which is a very good thing. But then you look at David and his resourcefulness and his wisdom and his efforts and what he's planning on doing in terms of taking action in the following verses, verses 27 through 29. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Amahaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. If God shows grace and allows me back, I'm going to go back. If he doesn't, then let God's will be what it is. But the thing, Zadok... You already have a position in the kingdom. So you go back to Jerusalem with Abiathar and your two sons and bring the ark with you. And you guys are going to be my informants of what's going on in the city. And you guys will come out and report back to me how things are going back there. So it's not like David saying like, yeah, whatever, whatever happens, whatever God does. Like, okay, cool, come on with me, bring the ark. No, he's still, there's a strategy. There's still thought, wisdom of what to do. So you guys go back. We still have to go. If God lets me see the ark again, fantastic. If not, the will of God. But you guys, I see a strategic place for you to be, so you guys go there. And so there's a part that is submitted to God's sovereignty, and then there's this part where he is taking action. And verses 25 and 26, they free David. David is free. He He's under the submission of God in God's hands because he knows that he is submitted to the will of God and he's submitted to God, but that doesn't mean that he's paralyzed to do anything about the situation. He still makes plans. He still has a strategy as to what his next steps are going to be. And so the sovereignty of God, it frees us. But at the same time, there is a stimulation of activity within us to keep doing what we're supposed to do. That we are free to act. That we're not powerless people that just let everything just steamroll us and then fate, it, it just whatever happens, happens. No, it's not like that. We know that God is powerful and that we are free to take action because he's powerful. That we rest in God's sovereignty while we are free to take action, that God gives us wisdom, that God gives us friendship, he gives us this freedom, and he gives us his will. Verses 30 and 31, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So David receives this really bad news. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And again, Ahithophel is one of the top counselors to David. He's given David great advice in the past. He knows David really well. He knows David's military strategies. He knows David's hideouts. He knows everything about David. David's in trouble. 
And so here's this guy that Absalom turned, who was highly respected and esteemed amongst David's leadership, so no doubt is able to also recruit others within David's inner circle to come over to Absalom as well. And so when you look at Ahithophel, he's kind of like the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. That's, that's Ahithophel. And he's now a top advisor to Absalom. And so David's in this really tough spot, and he does only what is left to do. He, he, he prays. Like, what else can he do? And he prays, Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And then right after this prayer, this happens in verse 32. Talk about God answering prayer very fast. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Quick answer. Right? Oh Lord, please help me. And here appears this guy. And so here we read, God's not done with David. That there is another opportunity for David to have a plant in Absalom's and Ahithophel's court. That he's going to send Hushai back to help him. And so we see these, these glimpses of God's will. And so how many times has this happened to you? So many discouraging and frustrating things that are happening, but then God sends these hints of encouragement to remind us, you're on the right track. Just keep going. Keep moving towards that. That he's, he's still in control. And we, we, we pray about some unfortunate things happening in our lives. We, we pray about those things, and we ask God to, to help us. And, and then God sends us this Hushai to remind us, I'm not done with you. Keep moving in the direction you are. And he answers our prayers in ways that we just aren't aware of until these small things start happening. Verse 35, Are not Zadok and Abiathar the, the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. And so things seem really grim for David as he's leaving Jerusalem and Absalom's coming in. But we see that God is still in control. And he reminds David by, by giving these hints. Hey, you still have the priests and the Levites that are going to be there. You still have Hushai. I've given you a friend in Ittai. You've made the right decision about saving the people and preserving your kingdom right now. Some of you may be wondering what's going on in your own life. You may be wondering what's going on in our church or at your job or in our country. God's grace will take care of us even when we don't always know what to do in our respective predicaments. That God's will will be done. And so we need to exercise that freedom in knowing that. 
That doesn't mean that we don't take efforts to try to get those desired outcomes we want, whether that's in our church or in our country or in our jobs or, or in our families or whatever it may be, that we still put the work into it and we take action and we put effort. But there is a freedom in knowing God is God and he loves us and he's our friend. There is a hushai and it doesn't always look like the answer that you're hoping for because sometimes that Hushai shows up in a torn coat and dirt on his head. And you're like, that's supposed to help me? Like, how's that supposed to help me? But it's just a small reminder, it's just a remnant that God always leaves these remnants of his grace, whether that is a Zadok or a Biather or Ahimaz or Jonathan or Hushai, he always leaves these hints. You're on the right track, keep going. I'm with you. And in our prayers, when things don't look so good, God gives us these hints that he's still in control. And in the midst of our own troubles, that if we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us generously. That we have a friend in Jesus, and you have friends around you to support you in the things that you're going through. And that he sends us these reminders of his will And we can rest in his freedom. We can rest in his freedom when we exercise these steps into taking action and putting effort. So we have this very awesome God who who generously gives gifts to us, the things that we need in the middle of any of our troubles. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that there is an encouragement to your people. Uh, whatever they're going through in their family life, in in their different relationships, at work, uh, in our church, and in our communities where we live. Uh, So many different discouraging things happening, and and yet, Lord, we ask for your grace, that we we rest in it. Uh, Not to excuse us from taking action, but to know that you are in control and that you're behind us. And as we pray, Lord, we we pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom as to how to deal with the things that are in front of us. We pray for that support of of friends. We ask, God, that we would recognize that you are on the throne. In Jesus' name, amen. If uh, any of you need communion elements, just hold up your hands. We're going to take communion together and we'll get that over to you. That wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ um, on the top of those, this communion. I don't know what they call these things. Symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us, who calls us friend. And so he has told us to take this in remembrance of him until his return. Um, and as we are eagerly awaiting his return, we do this every week. Um, in hopes of Christ's return. We take this together in his name. Fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us, reconciling us to our Holy Father in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thank you for these elements, this constant reminder that you are with us and that we are looking ahead 
to your return. May we not lose hope or faith. May we take this as an opportunity of grace that you give us more time so that more people can know you. In Jesus' name, amen.